We mentioned on the program a couple weeks ago that we were going to have uh, really an embarrassment of riches regarding some distinguished uh, persons appearing locally. Senator Robert Dole was here at the Mondavi Center on uh, the 4th. Unfortunately, we were unable to attend and uh, didn't have anyone there for us. Walter Cronkite then appeared at the University of Pacific on the 6th, Monday, and unfortunately we had no correspondence there either. Fortunately for us, when Oliver Stone came to speak here at Sacramento State University, KDVS does have its own liaison to CSUS, and she now joins us here on Radio Parallax. Welcome back, Sarah Lynn. Thank you. It's great to be back, Doug. Um, How was the turnout for Oliver Stone? Really, really good. A lot of people came up. It was about 100, 200 people there. It was really nice. How, how big a venue was that? Was it was it, was it jam packed or? Well, it was a huge lecture hall. There were still some spaces that needed to be filled, but a lot of people showed up. It was nice. Well, his latest film was World Trade Center. Did he did he did he spend a lot of time plugging his latest effort, or did he talk about all of his movies? He covered all of his movies, but he did. He went into um, how he felt about what was happening in Iraq and the war, and how he tied it into Vietnam, and it was really good. A lot of Q&A? Yeah, actually, um, a big part of it was questions and answers. And a lot of people stood in line. He did this whole stand in line where you'd ask him a question, he'd answer it. And a lot of people just went up just to shake his hand because they were so like moved by him. Did you get a sense for which of his films people responded to most warmly? He's got quite a body of work. Yes, he does. Uh, a lot of people talked about Born on the Fourth of July, and a lot of people talked about Platoon and Natural Born Killers. Natural Born Killers is one of my favorites myself. Actually, I guess I, could, I need to interject at this point my own Oliver Stone anecdote, which Sarah's why why I asked you about his films because really, I can say we do a radio show here because of Oliver Stone's movie JFK. After seeing that, and at the end of the movie in particular, when he mentioned how many records were regarding the assassination of President Kennedy that were still being hidden, Americans got really mad, and it was a big to-do politically for quite a while. And Oliver Stone is still considered this, you know, conspiracy theorist, really largely because of the movie um, JFK. In the wake of that, uh, I got interested in what really happened to President Kennedy, decided I would try and determine Know, what what the story really was and what what the events really what really took place on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. Uh, I still don't know, by the way, these many years later. But I know who's uh, I know who's lying about what happened that day. As a medical doctor, I was able to read some of the um, the reports, various doctors' reports from that day and afterwards at the autopsy, and I realized that something was wrong. When the Journal of the American Medical Association put an article out later, there was going to be a big medical debate in Chicago about it. And Dr. Cyril Wecht, who's been on this program and is, you know, you probably know him from from various famous cases. He's on TV a lot. Was going to debate some of the um, the other the other side, the medical side in Chicago. I went there to take part in, in that debate as a, as an assistant, I guess, as you will. And as it happened. Oliver Stone came in and joined us. Actually, very personable guy, very fun guy. 
but he was describing this upcoming movie he was making called Natural Born Killers, and I kept thinking, I, I, I don't get why this is going to be funny. But uh, when I finally did see it, it was really striking because I'd heard from the director, the one time in my life I'll hear about a major movie you know, from the director's mouth before it comes out, and I didn't get it when he described it, and I certainly didn't get it when I, when I saw it, but yet... You, you enjoyed it. Yes, I did. I thought it was pretty funny. Uh, some people, I think it's one of those movies that you either love it or you hate it, that some people get it, some people don't. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Um, not one of his best, but I definitely liked it. Well, I'm curious that the audience did respond to that, and certainly uh, Platoon and, and Born on the Fourth of July are really, you know, tremendous efforts mm-hmm. related to the Vietnam War. Yes. What did he have to say about the, the, upco- the, the current conflict? Um, well, basically his message that he wanted to get across was just that we need to get out of this amnesia and how we keep repeating what's happened in the past and we're losing all of our rights and now you need money. How his movies help in some way, how he thinks that all movies, not just his, but movies can help in some way to show what's going on in other places and I guess sort of take part in moving people forward in the activist motions. Well, I suppose a lot of people got a better sense of a lot of what really took place in Vietnam by seeing Platoon than from maybe reading news reports or reading books. Yes. One thing that I wanted to add was that he was really amazing to see up on stage. He was a really good public speaker. Enjoyed watching him. Funny, personable guy. It was really interesting. A lot of people liked him. I, in fact, wanted to shake his hand afterwards, but, but you I didn't. didn't. I didn't. <laughs> no, that's too bad. Yeah. Yeah, I saw him give a talk at Stanford once. He he is a, he's really quite comfortable in front of an audience mm-hmm. and knows how to talk to to like I think a younger generation. Yes, definitely. And he jokes around with you, and it was just really fun. I felt like he was talking to each of us individually. Okay. Like we were all asking him our own questions and. Yeah, I remember when one kid at Stanford walks up, take the mic, and, and Stone looks at him and pauses and goes, geez, you look just like Brad Pitt. <laughs> I'm sure that, that guy, I'm sure it made that guy's day. Yeah, really. All right, well, Sarah, good job on your assignment there to see Oliver Stone. Thank you. But, uh, what what should we give you as a next assignment? Well, actually, appearing this Thursday evening is uh, Dr. Drew doing Loveline in the campus ballroom on Sac State. So I think I'm going to go and check that out. I'm really interested. Dr. Drew Pinsky, the Loveline host. Yes, I'm a huge fan. Okay, well, actually, as we're talking, I, I'm pulling up the CAP Radio uh, website. They, they spoke with Dr. Drew here, uh, Jeffrey Callison did, I guess, uh, yesterday. So people can, uh, people can get an interview and insight, and then you'll, you'll, you'll talk about what he had to say at Sac State. Next week. Yes, definitely. All very good. That was uh, Sarah Lynn, uh, Radio Parallax, and KDVS's own Sac State University correspondent. And uh, from our obituary section, which we engage in from time to time, we would note the passing of P.W. Botha. That's not how his name was pronounced in South Africa, but we'll stay with the Americanized version and quote The Economist, noting that another page of history has been turned in South Africa. P.W. Botha, who led the country from 1978 to 1989 at the height of the anti-apartheid struggle, died on October 31st at the age of 90. Listening to the messages of condolence to his family from former adversary Nelson Mandela and President Thabo Mbeki, It may seem strange to recall that he was once utterly reviled in South Africa and abroad. An unrepentant hardliner of irascible temper, Mr. Botha, known as the Great Crocodile, 
never apologized for the evils of apartheid. Yet, Mr. Mandela, faithful to his undying spirit of reconciliation, credits him for playing a critical role in bringing them to an end. And in fact, as Prime Minister and then President, Mr. Botha did start dismantling the structure of apartheid by repealing its most abhorrent laws. And he was the first apartheid leader to secretly meet with Nelson Mandela while the latter was still in prison. This reminds us in the program we were trying to uh, to speak with his uh, successor, F.W. de Klerk. We contacted Mr. de Klerk in South Africa last year, and he was amenable to uh, coming and speaking with us on this program. But a few details uh, kept us from doing that. We're gonna we're gonna revive that effort and see if we can't bring you Nobel Prize winner F.W. de Klerk. We would like to bring on Mr. de Klerk with his co-Nobel Prize recipient um, uh, Nelson Mandela, but uh, Mr. Mandela's people have uh, uh, politely but firmly informed us that he is not doing interviews any longer. Sorry to say. I'd like to uh, close the program with some quotes here from an article by Ray McGovern. We were directed to this by our good friend Dr. Gary Aguilar, who's appeared in this program on a couple of occasions. This comes from consortiumnews.com and concerns Robert Gates. Robert Gates has been appointed by George W. Bush to replace Donald Rumsfeld as the new Secretary of Defense. Former Iran-Contra Special Prosecutor Lawrence Walsh also had some things to say about Mr. Gates. We would refer you to those on the web. But uh, Robert Parry and the good people at ConsortiumNews.com are pretty hard to beat. So I'd like to quote from Ray McGovern's article. Ray McGovern works with Tell the World which is the publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. Mr. McGovern was a CIA analyst from 1963 to 1990. He noted in this article that I have known Robert Gates for 36 years, starting when Gates was a journeyman analyst in CIA's Soviet foreign policy branch, which I headed. McGovern starts for notice, noting how... Uh, how Rumsfeld has been abandoned by his fair-weather friends among the neocons and said, I almost feel sorry for Donald Rumsfeld. And I'm not just saying that because with the Military Commissions Act, now signed into law, he can declare me, or anyone, an unlawful enemy combatant and disappear me into some black hole. Said McGovern, those close to Gates now say he's been privately critical of the way the war has been conducted, but he is the consummate chameleon. Clearly the beneficiary of the compared-to-what syndrome, Gates has been getting unduly positive press treatment since the announcement of his nomination. It is one thing to give him the benefit of the doubt. It is quite another to ignore the considerable baggage he brings with him from past service. Those of us who have had a front-row seat to watch Gates' handling of substantive intelligence cannot overlook the manner in which he cooked it to the recipe of whomever he reported to. A protege of William Casey, President Ronald Reagan's CIA director, Gates learned well from his mentor. In 1995, Gates told the Washington Post Walter Pincus that he watched Casey on issue after issue sit in meetings and present intelligence framed in terms of the policy he wanted pursued. Gates followed suit, cooking the analysis to justify policies favored by Casey and the White House. The cooking was consequential. Said McGovern, I was amused to read in David Ignatius's Washington Post column this week that Gates, quote, was the brightest Soviet analyst in the CIA shop, 
So Casey soon appointed him to deputy director overseeing his fellow analysts. Said McGovern, he wasn't. And Casey had something other than expertise in mind. Talk to anyone who was there at the time, and they will explain that Gates's meteoric career had mostly to do with his uncanny ability to see a Russian under every rock turned over by Casey. Those of Gates' subordinates willing to see two Russians became branch chiefs. Three won you a division. I exaggerate only a little. McGovern noted that Robert Gates carried uh, Bill Casey's water and stifled all the dissent. And, quote, one consequence was that the CIA as an institution missed the implosion of the Soviet Union. No small matter. I have to inject at this point the fact that in the 1980s, some people, some voices were raised saying the Soviet Union is not the threat the Bush administration makes it out to be. You did hear that. You did hear people saying that, but they were drowned out by the Robert Gateses of the world who portrayed the Soviet Union as being, you know, uh, 10 feet tall. So in McGovern, in 1991, when President George H.W. Bush nominated Robert Gates for the post of Director of Central Intelligence, there was a virtual insurrection among CIA analysts who had suffered under his penchant for cooking intelligence. This is a great article. We recommend very highly that you read it. My final quote from it would just be as follows. There are early indications that Senator Carl Levin, Democrat Michigan, ranking Democrat on the Armed Forces Committee, tends to acquiesce in the maneuvering of the White House's cat's paw chairman of that committee, Senator John Warner, to rush the nomination through the lame duck Senate before a new Congress is in place. Whether Levin steps up to the plate on Gates will be an early indication of whether the election has implanted any spine into Democrats. I'd like to uh, close the program with our second obituary, that of Ed Bradley, the CBS uh, 60 Minutes correspondent who passed away last week from chronic lymphocytic leukemia at age 65. Ed Bradley joined the staff of 60 Minutes when Dan Rather left to replace Walter Cronkite as the anchor of the CBS Evening News. Over the course of his career, Bradley received 19 Emmys, a Peabody Award, a Paul White Award from the Radio and Television News Directors Association. The National Association of Black Journalists awarded Bradley in 2005 with their Lifetime Achievement Award. I happened to be in the same dining area once as Ed Bradley. That was in Chicago at the Ritz-Carlton in that meeting that I mentioned earlier in, uh, in this segment where, where Oliver Stone came in. Uh, before that point, Four or five of us were sitting around the table. I noticed Ed Bradley a few tables away in a largely deserted dining room and noticed that when Oliver Stone came in to join us, Ed Bradley got up, threw down his napkin, and in a very uh, pointed gesture, stomped off in a huff. I think Oliver Stone must have noticed the gesture but said nothing about it, uh, nor did Cyril Weck nor anyone else at the table. It was an odd thing to witness, but I never did find out what was behind it. I'm sorry I didn't think to ask uh, Sarah Lynn to put that question to Oliver Stone if she'd gotten a chance to speak with him for a minute uh, after, the, after the talk. Maybe next time. I'd like to close with an email sent uh, to me by my fellow KDVS public affairs host, Franz Kassing, who noted about Ed Bradley that he once moonlighted as a disc jockey earning $1.50 an hour spinning records while working as a teacher by day. 
In his later years, he hosted the radio show Jazz at Lincoln Center. Said Bradley, The idea that I could go into a station and open the cabinet doors of what we called the library and pull out music past and present and play what I like to play, music I like to hear, and there were people out there listening to my taste in music, man, it just didn't get any better than that. You know, we think we know what he was talking about. Ed Bradley, gone but not forgotten. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett, and you've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time.